And leadership is about the change you can make happen. It's not about your title. It's not about the resources you have at hand. It's about the impact you can have. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind, Machines in the Gravy Descent. Thanks for tuning in again to geek out with us over the fascinating field of AI and the role of humans. We are Bano and Uli, your hosts for this episode, and we are super excited to welcome the genius mind in our today's episode, Jim Hagemann-Snabe. Jim, we are super happy to have you here with us today and that you took some time out of your busy schedule to share some of your perspectives on AI with our listeners. So how are you? Or shall we ask Kanok, Ipizi? Ayungi Langa. I am fine, actually. Ayungi Langa, QAN. Oh, that was Greenlandic because uh, you hailed from Denmark, but you also spent several years of your childhood in Greenland. Looking at your Vita, Jim, you studied Mars and operations research. You kicked off as a trainee at SAP. You rose through the ranks to become co-CEO of SAP. Amazing. Today, you are chairman of Siemens and of the world's biggest container shipping company, AP Mersk. You are on the board of the World Economic Forum, and you're focusing on truly global questions. That's outstanding and inspirational for everyone. Jim, would you say that your studies in math and operations research we are a good foundation for understanding the world of AI today? Yeah, no, it's actually true. I was quite inspired by math early in my, in my studies. I, my master's was actually in operational research, uh, trying to solve a very complex mathematical problem called the quadratic assignment problem. And, and when I left the university, I thought actually at the time that there was a, an optimal solution to every problem because that's what I had studied, finding the optimum. And I spent a lot of years actually still believing that. But in the meantime, I have understood that the world is more unpredictable. And math, while it plays a role in, in trying to make complexity and understood and, and even decompose big problems, It does not describe the real world. And so when I look at my learnings from math, I guess I'm, I'm moving my leadership style away a little bit from being able to predict and, and magically find the optimum solution and more of an iterative learning kind of experience, more actually inspired by biology, where you could argue the mutation is the in, innovation in business, um, which has inspired me even more the last 10 years. Wow, that's truly fascinating. So innovation relies on mutations of biology, on, on the unpredictable, and leadership is here to channel that innovation then, as I heard you say many times, and to use the power of business in order to drive human progress. When we met some days ago to prepare for this podcast, you mentioned a life-changing event in this respect, an experience that really changed your perspective. Can you tell our listeners about that moment? Yeah, no, that is back uh, probably what you're referring to is a, a trip I did in 2008 as part of my uh, attempt to become more of a global leader. I had worked and, and been a leader at SAP for, for many years, and I was invited on this journey 
um, partly to understand, let's say, globalization better, but also to see reality. And I spend a week mostly in India. And in a sim single day, I would meet some of the poorest people and some of the richest people on the planet and reflect on you know, topics like what is happiness all about. There was clearly no correlation between wealth and happiness. And I came back with this idea that leadership is about the change you can make happen. It's not about your title. It's not about the resources you have at hand. It's about the impact you can have. And, and the moment that inspired me the most was a young woman. Uh, I think at the time she was 23. And she had found a way to educate the kids in construction sites in Mumbai, whose parents live on these construction sites, and therefore they cannot go to school. And she had found a way to deliver a school at the construction site with women from the neighborhood and $12 per kid per month. So a good story of how you can have great impact with no resources because you have strong leadership, a big dream and a big problem to solve and then make sure it, it happens. So, so I believe that business is much more than just a shareholder value. It's about creating value in the communities in which we operate. And, and that's also what inspires me a lot by, by Siemens. We have this incredible impact in the communities in which we operate. And when we master technology to do that, uh, we can really make a difference in the world, a positive one. Yeah, that's awesome. That's inspirational. So making a difference encompasses then also in, in large cooperation, also encompasses understanding about business models. And if we, we are an AI and geeky podcast here, right? So if we go now for the business models, uh, you know, of today, especially in, in this platform economy, you know, quite a few, especially in consumer tech, I guess, is on exploiting private and personal data, to be honest, right? Um, and you, you, I've seen a, a great article from you actually most recently on the, on the VAF um, on the importance of human value-centered AI. Can you elaborate a bit on the few on the role of privacy in data? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the importance of data uh, is cannot be uh, underestimated. Uh, in particular, if you add uh, AI, artificial intelligence, on top of that. It's funny because when I studied my math, uh, math at the time was a you know descriptive kind of models. And we did have artificial intelligence classes, but we had two problems at the time. There was not enough data and there was not enough compute power. And then you can't really make AI work. And that has changed since then. Now we actually have a situation where we have enough data. Some would argue too much, and I'll come back to that. And we have a compute power that allows uh, algorithms to self-learn from observations. And that creates a whole new opportunity of creating value. Uh, and, of course, to create new business models. And I guess that's where your question goes in depth, because what we have seen in the first wave of AI is, of course, a collection of data, mostly consumer data. I think we have, to some extent, been luring uh, the data away from people by offering them some you know, free application on the phone without them necessarily knowing what kind of data is being collected. And the data is being used in what I call irresponsible ways. Not only do you lose your privacy, which you could argue is one level of, of, of problem, but when these algorithms that are designed to persuade you for a certain opinion being used for you know, political opinions or, or even fake opinions. Uh, 
then it becomes a very dangerous uh, use of data and use of AI. So I've been advocating a lot that what we need to use data and, and AI for is to enhance human capacity. It is to strengthen our democracies. It is to give people a voice and make meaning out of data uh, so that we can create a better future. And, and I think we haven't seen that from some companies so far. They have been misusing data and they have been misusing the power of AI to create something that deteriorates human values and potentially kills uh, democracies. And, and that's why I'm so vocal about it. I am, maybe as a last comment, very proud of the way Siemens is dealing with this because we have set, and I guess you guys have been involved in that, set some principles for the way we use data and, and some principles for the way we use AI. And I think that goes very, very much hand in hand with a purpose-driven company that has uh, progress in society in mind, not just uh, own profits, and then never mind whether it's done in a reasonable way, uh, like some companies. Yeah, the um, principles for responsive AI as posed by, by Siemens Knight. The other side, if we, and you touched it already. So if we coming from a consumer, more attention based economy, predictive behavior aspects towards um, an economy in, in the industrial space, uh, more on optimization and leveraging these capabilities for vital challenges in the world, right? Then it's still that, you know, Sharing data across industry partners and industrial partners is not yet on that level, I, I, from my experiences, where we could have in order to solve that. How, how could we convince, you know, these partners or ourselves, including ourselves, I guess, as a company, right? Is that, you know, um, it's, it's not only for their own, but also for everybody's benefit if we collaborate to each other. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very important question. Now, if we believe, like I do, that data is kind of the, the source for the value creation on AI. And uh, and I remember maybe an anecdote when I was first uh, joined this, the board of AP Mellomask, uh, the, the founding family asked me, at the time, Mask was a conglomerate. They had a lot of business in the oil sector. And the uh, third generation of the family asked me, what is our next oil? And my answer was, I think it's data and smart people. So, so if you believe that that is true, then of course, the more data we have, the smarter we can make our AI and the better decisions we can make with the people we have. And there, the sharing of data becomes vital. If we look at the consumer world, I think what we have seen so far is, is almost a tendency to create what I call data monopolies, where there are few companies because of the network effect on platforms They sit on an incredible amount of data, uh, far beyond what we even had imagined. And if that is a monopolized set of data, it becomes uh, an unfair competitive advantage in, in my mind. And it misses out on the societal value that the data could have. Now, in the industrial space, we have a very different situation because you can't steal someone's data in the industrial space. You can't tell them, the wind turbine or the Siemens train or the uh, operations controls in a factory from Siemens that it should you know, share its data in return for something free. <laughs> it is Siemens who decides 
who gets access to the data and of course the customer. And I am convinced that we are at an inflection point where we need to go from what I call ego systems where few people master and monopolize a lot of data and create a lot of value for very few uh, people to ecosystems where the data is a shared source of information and we contribute with our data as Siemens because then we get access to other parts of data as well. And with that, we can solve bigger problems for our customers. A good example uh, could be in the energy system space where of course, a renewable energy system is very volatile. You don't know when you produce energy, and you certainly don't, you know that it's not when you need it. So you have this unpredictability in the system. And AI is the only way to solve that problem. You need to look at patterns, at you know, weather reports and consumption patterns, and then begin to understand how to level that system out. Now, if Siemens does that alone, of course, we can't manage the spikes in the system of Germany. And so this problem, which is a big problem to solve in order for us to move to renewable energy sources, can only be solved if we all share the data. Now, then you can ask yourself, well, is that then a competitive disadvantage? I think not. I think it offers Siemens, if we share our data with others, even competitors, and get their data, of course, it offers us a pro an opportunity to solve bigger problems. Hence, have more value creation. And then you can't defend yourself from a competitiveness point of view by monopolizing the data. You simply have to be better. And I'm not afraid of that competition. I'm sure we can be. Okay, so sharing data across company borders needs trust, fostering ecosystems needs trust, and taking decisions while relying on, on algorithms also needs trust. Yet that's that, that black box aspect of AI. There's a call for transparency because algorithms themselves are not transparent, right? This makes it sometimes difficult to build up trust in AI's capabilities. What is your view on trustworthy AI? Is it a burden for European companies to commit to higher levels of trust? Or are we maybe developing like a future USP? How would you envision that leaders shape this responsible agenda and, and put trust back? I think this is the key question around AI. I mean, I've studied the algorithms. I actually took classes on US universities online for the last three years in order to better understand how these algorithms work. And they are super complex. I thought my math when I did my master's was complicated, but the math in, in AI is very complicated. And the uniqueness is, of course, that it is programming itself, so to say. It is learning from observations. And with that, it's creating models for probabilities and comes up with recommendations based on probabilities, based on the data it has uh, used to learn. In particular, Deep learning algorithms have such a pattern. And, and what that does is in the current version of the deep learning algorithms, there is no real explainability, which means when the algorithm comes back with a response, you have to choose whether you believe it or not. Um, now, in some 
responses in some areas, it doesn't matter. Like Netflix, it will suggest to me which movies I like based on patterns from other viewers. And for that, I don't really care how it came up with that. It may be right, it may be wrong, who cares? And of course it gets better over time, but I really don't need to know why it is suggesting some movie. Whereas if someone is using AI to diagnose me in healthcare, I would really want to know why it believes I have cancer or not. And that's where I think the explainability comes in. Now, my key idea for the explainability is that we keep one rule stable, which is there has to be a human being responsible for the final decision, not an AI. And if that is a rule that we apply, then if I'm asked to take responsibility for the AI uh, or the, the final decision, and I get a response from AI and it's a critical decision, of course, I would want to know why does the AI suggest this. Hence, yes, it's a burden, but I think we need to build it into the algorithms themselves. It's unsolved today, but there are many researchers looking into this problem. And I would not unleash AI in critical areas without an element of explainability and not without a human being finally being responsible. The way I began to think about this was a project actually for the European Union where I was asked to participate in a, in a high-level group of people. And we were asked the following question. What should the rules be for weapon systems, autonomous weapon systems? And it's a, it's a great question to ask yourself because now it's clearly not the Netflix movie. I mean, you have a machine that has abilities to kill someone. And of course you conclude there must be a human being responsible. You can't blame it on the, on the robot. <laughs> and once you have done that, you must have explainability. I think it's key. For instance, we cannot see bias of AI unless we have explainability. So a simple thing like a recruitment AI can be super biased based on historic data, and we won't notice because we um, don't have explainability. We have to solve that problem. So my hope is that we have certified algorithms with explainability elements inside and that companies will use them and not unexplainable AI with the consequences that it might have. I, I fully agree. And I mean, even in non-critical application areas, explainability helps to improve the algorithms and make it more scalable in the end, right? So uh, scalability is a major issue. Many business cases have to be reworked because AI solutions do not always scale as planned. One example might be if you think of industrial installations like recycling plants, for instance, the same AI model does not necessarily work across different plants because the mix of garbage might be different, because there are seasonal effects like Christmas or, or sudden pandemics that arise, and they all have immediate effect on the operations and on the data. So as AI models can drift and data can drift, we might need constant active AI learning approaches. The human cannot be substituted. It looks, but it has to get used to a rather continuous human AI companionship. What's, what's your view on that trend? Well, it's, um, it's interesting. I've seen a couple of those examples where 
when you copy the system to another location, for instance, it doesn't work. The easiest one to understand is uh, imagine a self-driving vehicle in Germany and in Mumbai, where I met uh, the leader I talked about earlier. I can assure you the algorithm in Mumbai has to be very different because a red light doesn't mean people stop the car. They just are a little bit more careful. And so the algorithm needs to take complete different uh, decisions based on, on different assumptions. Now, is, does that make it not scalable? I'm not sure. I mean, of course, it means more effort. But I actually think it's good effort. I think like human beings where we are arguing we need lifelong learning, which is basically that we continuously observe in our lives, we get better, better understanding. We may even change our minds as we come to my age about certain things because we stay open-minded. I would love that to be the case for, for AI as well. You know, imagine um, lifelong learning AI. I, I like that idea. Love that. <laughs> and so we need to find ways to, to, let's say, apply the systems, but then make them continuously learn in the situations that they are and not be obsessed with, you know, one size fits all. Um, I, I think AI is exactly the opportunity to learn so fast in various scenarios rather than just one um, and thereby actually be much more situational in its uh, behavior and, and not generic. I also think it fits really well to my, let's say, principle that AI is not replacing human beings. It is enhancing them. It's empowering them. It's uh, making them better at making decisions. But the human beings are still in charge. And your garbage system is a good example. We make robots do the garbage you know, sorting. Why should human beings do that? And, and, and we make sure that we build the systems around garbage so that we can reuse as much as possible. And, and that makes the human center of the solution an AI, a tool in the means to achieve our human uh, desire or, or more sustainable future. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think this is also the age, as you said, like, you know, there's a continuous learning of AI because the last, let's say, five years was the supervised revolution, basically finding problems where you can throw a lot of to compute, a lot of data in there and then boil it down, never change the system. It's, for many cases, it does work very effectively, but especially also in industrial flair, when we need to have this continuous momentum to connect business and domain know-how and have this human oversight to, because we're entering the physical world as well and this is i love that uh, your your notion of of continuous there but if we connect and it obviously needs to provide value and coming back maybe to your your mumbai uh deep lessons actually you have and if we draw it then obviously in a bit business context again then we end up potentially with milton friedman and say you know the business of business is business right maybe something has changed over the since the 70s right on over this mantra and it seems to be not replaced but on a CX and on the designs of world leaders level, it seems to change and the perspective rather to drive, you know, it's not business of business, but this business of making progress in the world. And in, in this sense, right, this is also where you're very active in, and you mentioned it before, an aspect called stakeholder capitalism. Can you elaborate a bit of you uh, on that? 
Yeah, no, I think that's very, very important. And it's kind of, a, I wouldn't say it's a new aspect, but it's certainly a, an important aspect of understanding the role of business. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think it was Milton Friedman who said in 72 or so, the business of business is business. And, and that same year, the World Economic Forum was created or the first Davos dialogue meetings was created by Klaus Schwab. And, and he argued stakeholder. And, and he said, well, there's more than one bottom line. There's one bottom line for the shareholders. But if you don't have a good bottom line for the employees, how will you uh, make sure that you can even deliver uh, on the shareholders? If there's not a good bottom line for the customer, how can you even imagine delivering any you know, value for your shareholders? And in recent years, of course, the fourth bottom line is the one for the planet, where the industrial world, uh, 200 years of, of optimization has taught us to, you know, maximize outcomes, but accept incredible waste and also uh, pollution, um, which is, of course, externalities that we should take into the way we look at business. So, so I'm a big believer in what you mentioned, stakeholder capitalism, which is really about how does business deliver value to all stakeholders, not just one. It was you know, originally invented in 72, as I said, by Klaus Schwab. And many have argued against it because they say, well, if you have to balance, either it's good for the shareholder or it's good for the other stakeholders, then the shareholder always wins. And that is probably true. I mean, if you're not making profits, then you go out of business and then you can't make anything good for the planet anyway. But... I think with technology, and we're coming back now to data and AI and modern technologies, we begin to move these two circles uh, so they overlap, so that value for shareholders could also be good value for the other stakeholders, investing in people so they can use modern technology is a good value for employees and I think a good value for shareholders, investing in ways to get customers more happy so they get more value and you look at our industrialization and verticalization of solutions that is also good for customers and shareholders and even on the sustainability the climate front i mean we have more than half of our revenues at siemens connected with products that help our customers become more sustainable uh, so pollute less, have less CO2 emissions. And so suddenly it's not like in the old world where you would make business for the shareholders, you would make a profit, and then you would have a difficult decision to say, how much of my profits will I spend on doing good? So it's not how you spend your money. Today it's about how you earn your money. How do I earn money in a way that's good for shareholders, good for customers, good for employees, and good for the planet. And I truly believe that that's possible, in particular when you have tools like AI and data. Because for instance, we can use data from you know, vibrations from a wind turbine and increase the uptime of that system. And because we do that, we do better business with that turbine. It's you know, more productive for its customer. And it's better for the environment. And, and so suddenly we have opportunities where 
we can optimize entire systems because we have the compute power, we have the algorithms, and we have access to the data in ways we could never do before. And that is what makes these stakeholder capitalism possible without too many trade-offs. And that excites me. And so I, I always argue that we live in this unique moment in history where it's suddenly good business to do the right thing. And I feel super lucky to, to be living and leading in this moment of history, but also to do that with Siemens. Because I, I can't imagine a company that has more impact on some of the most critical infrastructures in this world than Siemens. Now we apply data and AI to that. Wow, there's so much we can do. Wow, this is beautiful. So the world is moving towards a state where the benefit of all involved stakeholders has to be taken into account. People, planets, and profit. That is a massive paradigm shift. At the same time, Siemens claims to improve the everyday. So one of our strategic pillars is technology with purpose. So in the end, is technology with purpose the Siemens way of moving towards a stakeholder capitalism world? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. I think if you believe in stakeholder capitalism, which is about creating value for all stakeholders, then instead of starting with a product where you say, okay, I have a product, what can I use it for? And then you may even misuse it. Uh, nuclear power can be misused for you know, other things. I think you start with a purpose, which is the question around which problems am I solving? Mm -hmm. And if you look at Siemens today, our purpose-driven mentality is one of trying to solve some of the most pressing problems that this planet has. I mean, they're even well articulated. The United Nations has articulated uh, 17 so-called SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And Siemens is addressing many of them. Um, so, so we're trying to make manufacturing that has less uh, waste and is more sustainable. Um, we're trying to make a transportation that is sustainable and more convenient. We're trying to make individualized healthcare and even preventive healthcare, ideally, um, with our healthcare. We're trying to create urban areas with uh, sustainability and recycling of resources and, and, and low uh, consumption of, of energy. And when you start with that, then you begin to think about which products do I need in order to serve that. And suddenly it's no longer just a piece of hardware, which is not a, a diminishing of the value of that. But imagine you can combine a piece of hardware with some software that solves that problem in a more holistic way. So then you solve a bigger problem. You have a higher purpose and your hardware suddenly has a much higher value. And, and that's why we're seeing Siemens now successful in its focused structure, increasing our growth rates, increasing our margins. It's not because we you know, try and, and, and do more things with fewer people. It's because we are adding more value, because we're solving bigger problems, and because we are combining hardware and software and, and data and AI in ways nobody has done before. Uh, so yes, that is technology with purpose, and it's the way to solve the stakeholder capitalism problem. I love that. 
And you, you mentioned oh, that this makes clear, and this is the matter uh, I get out or in every conversation I listen to you. Actually, is you know, it's it's the future belongs to those companies that generate profits with a sustainable and responsible products and solution to others. Right. So we can make a business, a great business, around the challenges and make the world still more challenges. And I think this this is the meta scheme, right? Isn't it? Yes. I could argue that over 200 years we have taught industrialization where we try to make more and more of the same things, you know, so they were cheaper and cheaper. And we had an increased specialization in doing that. So our company will do one thing and someone else will do the next thing. And then eventually it hopefully adds up. Look at the automotive companies. They've, you know, really specialized. They don't even produce most of the parts themselves. They hardly assemble them. They just put their design and the brand on. And so we really specialize those value chains. And it seems to me like we are, we are coming back to a more holistic approach where we're saying, well, what's the whole you know, waste in this system? What's the entire you know, pollution of this system? And how do we minimize the waste and the pollution while creating more relevant individualized products for customers? And that is where I get super proud of Siemens because to do that, you need an orchestrator. You need a company that's willing to and able to look broad on the value chain, even find ways to make it more circular. And of course, data and AI becomes the means to do that because we don't do all of these things, but we collect the data from all of these things. We even help customers with our digital factory uh, technology or DI to design products and build products in that way. And, and so we have this huge opportunity to be the, let's say, the orchestrator of holistic value chains that are more valuable and much more sustainable. That's the role I see for Siemens going forward. So we honestly can't wait to see that, that potential of technology with purpose fully unfold its impact on a more sustainable world. Yet another field of action that you always focus on is related to tech governance. You argue for smart regulation and a deliberate approach to leveraging the benefits of new technologies while, while mitigating the risks. So in your view, how can we find the right balance between regulation and technology innovation? And, and how can we know that we found it one day? Well, it is a dilemma. And it's the dilemma that you need some regulation to avoid, let's say, the unintended consequences of powerful technology. And at the same time, every time you regulate, it's kind of you, you limit innovation. And, and so the question we have to ask ourselves is how can we regulate and at the same time not reduce innovation. We want more data, not less data. So let's not regulate so we get less data. We want more use of AI, not less use of AI. So let's not regulate so we don't get much AI anymore. And I think that is the dilemma. You, you could argue that the internet, the or sorry, the World Wide Web, the protocol that was invented at the CERN Institute to share research results became what it is today, probably the most significant innovation in my lifetime. Um, 
because it had no regulation. It was a decentralized architectural blueprint that was adopted worldwide. And so you see the power of not regulating too much. And at the same time, we begin to see that, well, that unregulated infrastructure is being used for things we did not intend. Um, not just cyber attacks uh, where people steal someone else's money in ways where you don't even know who it was, but also in unintended ways, as we talked about earlier, how data is being used or misused to persuade people for different opinions or amplify extreme opinions or uh, untruthful statements in, in ways that are uh, challenging our democracy. So, so it's clear to me that we need some regulation. I'm trying to argue a minimum set of regulation, which is more principle-based. And the principles that I would like to apply is a large, to a large degree based on the principles we have in the physical world. I'll give you one example. If I mail a, a letter in an envelope and I send it with Deutsche Post or the Danish Postal Service, mm-hmm. I know they won't open the letter. <laughs> but in the digital world, we've kind of lost that idea. And then some will say, yeah, but they don't open it because you pay for the stamp. Yeah, I'm happy to pay for my mail service if I know nobody is, is opening my mail just to you know, understand me better and persuade me better. And, and, and that's a little bit where I see some regulation. You bring in the, let's say, the reasonable principles we have in the physical world into the digital world. And, you know, you don't steal. So, so why would you steal in the digital world just because you can as a good example. And then on top of that, and these are minimum regulations, I think the big discussion will be, should we regulate the business model of persuasion platforms? Is it okay to amplify craziness because it gives more engagement? I think that model should be not allowed, or there should at least be a model where you can pay for the same service without the persuasion element. Like on television, you can have channels with commercials and without, and you choose. But you pay for those without. And my big plea, and I even wrote a book about it called Tech for for Life, is really that anyone involved in tech, you, everyone at Siemens, we should apply some human principles. I call it the compass of reasonability, where we use technology in a responsible way, we can look ourselves in the mirror and say, I have not used technology in an irresponsible way. I have used it in a good way. It's good for the product, it's good for the customer, and it's good for our society. If we had that as a principle, we don't need much regulation. Empower and trust, love that. But but it's still it's easier said as done, right? If you, especially in large organization, you know, given this tremendous change, large organization also it's a Siemens undergo in terms of adaptability, focus, uh, reinventing, adopting to new environments, coming up, you know, these new business models, digitalization impacting it. But this is also about the culture you're shaping in an organization, and and sometimes. Uh, I have the feeling, and I'm a geek by nature, right? Uh, that the technology is is progressing and adopting so fast that's really tough somehow to reflect also for the experts, right? To f- uh, reflect and concise the the full impact of the work, right? So basically, we we demand from the folks and the colleagues quite some leaps, some trust leaps, right? Or trust in in speed, on speed, basically, right? So so to say, will this emphasize on speed? Will allow us to somehow stay 
you know, being human and responsible to reflect on the use of technology? And how do you see the role of culture, corporate culture in that? Well, in many ways, you know, if I'm right, and we go back to the beginning of this conversation where I said in the past, I thought we could calculate everything that was an optimal and there's a model and you can just, you know, put the numbers in and, and do the math, which is a world of predictability. And therefore, there is a perfect plan. And we now argue, well, the world has become unpredictable. You cannot in any way predict the future. COVID-19 is a good example of a, an unplanned event that had major impact. But innovation has been the driver of such, let's say, mutations of business models for, for the last 20 years, and it's just accelerating. So if, if that is true, then we do need to go to a different leadership model where we don't try and plan everything and then follow up whether we deliver on the plan, because the plan is always wrong if you can't predict the future. And I'm suggesting that speed is more important than scale. So the reason we actually broke Siemens up in three Siemens, the Siemens, the Siemens Engineers, and the Siemens Energy was to get more focused companies with more speed and less bureaucracy that's trying to control things because then you can't deliver on the speed of the future. So we need to live with speed. And I think you're right, technology is not the limiting factor. It is human beings. And culture, of course, matters. I'm hoping for a culture where we are much more iterative in our approach, a little bit like the Scrum idea in the Agile approach, where you iterate and learn and iterate and learn. And the beauty of Scrum is that there's a lot of empowerment of people, the frontline people, those who are closest to the action. And the second beauty of Agile is that everyone understands what's going on. There's these morning meetings where you get a feel for what's going on. And for me, that's the ultimate empowered organization that can move at high speed because everyone knows what's going on. And they have to trust then that this way of involvement brings an exponential uh, learning curve, an exponential innovation curve. And with that, it creates growth opportunities and hence opportunities for every single person in the company as long as you continue to grow your own skills as well and stay relevant with the technologies that are most relevant for the time. So a culture of empowerment and agility is what makes the difference. Thank you so much for your view on this. There have been so many valuable insights already, yet still we, we dare to ask you, what are some key lessons that you learned during your extraordinary career and that you want to share with young talents listening to this podcast? Maybe talents who want to make a difference in, in large corporations, be it Siemens or others. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have been extremely fortunate to have had great opportunities in, in my career. And of course, they come um, in, in random ways. So they're very hard to plan as well. So, but a few of the learnings that I would give to young colleagues today. First of all, the highest priority on my list was always to learn. I never pursued the title. I never pursued the salary increase if I could get more learning. I always tried to put myself in roles where I knew some of it, but not all of it. So that's rule number one for me, which means that in my career, I did a lot of, let's say, moves horizontally. I went into new areas. You know, I started in in consulting, then I went into sales, then I went into innovation and, and software development. And then, and it's a little bit like a pyramid. 
the wider you make the platform or the base, the taller the pyramid you can create. And so that's my first learning. The second learning or advice I would give is to always try and make yourself no longer needed. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I always try to make myself have colleagues who were as good as to do what I did as I was or even better. Because that for me was the key to be allowed to do something else. If, if you're the only one who knows how to do this, there is no chance that you will ever get another job because you will have to stay and do this until it's irrelevant. So I always looked at my, my jobs, my roles as projects, not trying to stick to that chair that I got, but actually try to get into it, understand what I could improve, get the improvements going with a team, and then hand over my chair. And the moment I handed it over, I was offered the next chair. And so that's maybe a different way of thinking, but one that has really helped me. And the third and, and last uh, lesson that I learned was that you may be remarkably good, but you're never better than a team. You know, I studied math. I was sitting alone in my little study at the university, and I thought I was the best in the world. And when I got out in business, I learned that my success was much more dependent on the brilliance of the team that I could work with. And so I've always tried to be in situations where I worked with brilliant people, people who were much better than me, who I could learn from, and also having respect for the fact that together we can do so much more than even the most brilliant mind can do alone. Love it. Love it. I, I'll write it down. Write it down. <laughs> so we're almost at the end of our sessions. But uh, before we close that, uh, you know, Aubrey, my wonderful colleague of mine, you know, had this idea of uh, what we call authentic autocompletes as the, the finishing game. So it's, it works like that we give you a couple of sentence starters and then you finish up just the sentence. Is okay? Okay. Can we start with that? Yeah. All right, so the first one, it should be easy. Siemens is. Siemens is the company on this planet that can impact the future the most. Love it. Tech for Life is. Tech for Life is about responsible use of technology for progress in society. Love that. Innovation is. That's a tough one. Wow, yeah. Innovation is um, the key to unlock future sustainable solutions. Love it. My favorite quote is? It is um, Kofi Annan from the United Nations who said, we are the first generation who can solve um, poverty in the world and the last generation who can solve the climate crisis. Oh, great. Okay, and the very, very last question here is, okay, that's also a very tough one. If I could invent a rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be? It would be to trust other human beings and team up for progress. Oh, I love it. That's marvelous. Jim, thanks so much for your time and for this conversation. We are really, really honored to have, you know, your few on, on this little podcast show. So we're really delighted. Thanks so much for your time. Listen, this was a, you know, a, a great conversation. I had many meetings this week, but this was uh, 
certainly a highlight. So thanks for the invitation and keep doing what you're doing. You know, you have the key to unlock the future. So uh, make sure we get many of those keys uh, into the Siemens organization and uh, show the potential that we have. Thank you. Awesome. And folks out there, you have heard it, right? We got the key all together, right? And maybe he means you guys. Stay bold, committed, and open-minded. And we hear us definitely at the next Siemens AI Lab podcast. Thanks. Mm -hmm.